Well, again, good morning. Let's go ahead and pray as we jump into our sermon today. Father, Lord, this, million, uh, this morning we have uh, a million reasons to be thankful. And we acknowledge that all of those reasons are gifts from you. And so we say thank you for your care. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your unending mercy, a well from which we daily need to draw. And so we pray that you might bless us once again this morning as we've gathered to sing your praises and open your word. This morning, we, we do pray for those who might feel burdened by life, for those who might feel ashamed and unclean, for those who might feel apathetic and indifferent to you and to life, to those who might have an overwhelming sense of dread for the future, for, for all these and more, Lord, we pray. Lord, would you bless us all with a renewed sense of joy and relief as we wade in the waters of your gospel today. So again, please bless our time in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, amen. Well, last week we returned to our sermon series through 1 Peter, and we finished chapter 3 last week, which means we should be starting chapter 4 today. However, we're going to take a one-week detour out of 1 Peter already, okay? Um, This morning, I actually want us to look at a passage out of the New Testament letter of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 specifically today. And this passage, really, I do think has a connection with the major theme of 1 Peter and certainly the lessons we've seen from our last few passages in 1 Peter. So even though this is a a detour, it's a quick one, it's not that far off, we'll be back on the main road next week, uh, Lord willing, okay? So let me invite your attention to Colossians chapter one today. And obviously this is a different letter than 1 Peter. Uh, So it's good for us really to to, uh, get our bearings a little bit about this letter who wrote it, what was the situation, what's going on before we dig into the passage at hand today, right? So the, the letter of Colossians, this is a letter written by the apostle Paul. So first Peter was written by Peter, the apostle. Uh, the apostle Paul wrote Colossians and, and it was written to a church in the city of Colossae, okay? But this was a church that Paul had never been to. He didn't actually meet these people yet. Because it was a church that was actually started not by Paul, but by another man, a man named Epaphras. And Epaphras was from the city of Colossae, but sometime in his life, he traveled, he left town and he went to the city of Ephesus. And there in Ephesus, he heard the gospel preached by Paul. He responded in faith, began to be a follower of Jesus. And Epaphras then goes back home to Colossae and starts telling other people about what he's heard in the gospel. And as he's doing that, people in his hometown start believing. They start responding in faith just like he did and started to follow Jesus. And and so there's this group now of followers of Christ in the city of Colossae. This church has been planted by this guy named Epaphras. And so at the time of this letter of Colossians, Paul's in prison. He's probably in Rome. And while he's in prison, Epaphras, the guy who starts the church in Colossae, goes to visit Paul in prison to give him the report. This is what God's been doing in Colossae. This is how he's drawing people to himself. Uh, There's great gospel growth. There's great gospel fruit in the city. And so I want you to hear about all the good things that the Lord's doing. And things had been going well there, clearly. However, he was also bringing this report that there were some bad things as well. There were some false teachers who had crept into the church in Colossae as as happened often in the first century and really all throughout all of history. But these false teachers were coming in and sitting amongst these brand new believers and trying to pull their attention away from the finished work of Christ. 
And, and really the teaching that they were peddling to the people we, we gathered from the letter was, was probably a mixture of, of what we call Jewish legalism, which is uh, this belief that you had to follow the Jewish law along with your faith in Christ to be saved, to be a part of the people of God. A mixture of that and some kind of local uh, cultish mysticism because he talks about worshiping angels and things like that. So it was some kind of mixture of that. And here they are in this new church saying, this is the truth. What you heard from Epaphras, what he heard from Paul, that's not fully it. There's more to the story. There's more to the gospel. And so in this letter of Colossians, Paul writes to these people he's never met. And what he wants to do is to declare two huge truths to them. One, that Jesus is both sufficient for salvation as well as supreme over all of creation. So he's sufficient for your salvation and he's supreme over all creation. And since this is true, he's saying to them, root yourself in Christ. I mean, that's the main theme of this letter. Don't be pulled away by other philosophies. Don't be pulled away by other ideologies. Root yourself in Christ. Okay, so, so that's Colossians in a nutshell. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to look at a passage this morning at the end of chapter one. Uh, specifically beginning in verse 24, but let's go ahead and start in verse 21. That gives us a little bit of the immediate context, okay? Colossians chapter one, verse 21. Paul says, and you, Christians, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay, so, so chapter one really is mainly about the work of God in the gospel. Paul often begins his letters this way. Don't forget what God's done for us, uh, for us in Christ before he turns into, this is how we practically live it out. And so chapter one's all about that. Here's God, here's his work in you through the gospel. And then he goes on to talk about Christ and his supremacy and preeminence over all things. But then to pick it up here in verse 21, Paul says, this is the gospel. Don't forget it. That the good news of God's work in Christ to reconcile former enemies, former enemies of God to present them holy and blameless and above reproach. And then he's done that in his body of flesh by his death. Or as Peter said in our passage last week, if you remember at the end of chapter three in first Peter, that Jesus, that Christ suffered once for sins, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So again, same focus here, We're talking about the gospel, the good news of God's work through Christ. And Paul says here, specifically in verse 23, that this gospel is of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay, so there's a little switch in focus here so far. I hope you're following me here. Chapter one, he begins talking about God. He starts talking about the preeminence and supremacy of Christ. But now he's talking about his ministry as a minister of the gospel. That all of this work, all of this good news that God has done for us through Jesus, now I'm a minister of that good news. And that's what he's, uh, this passage is all about, is gospel ministry. But as we're, you're going to see that there's a connection here to 1 Peter uh, that we've been talking about for so long. Because in, in this passage, Paul is specifically talking not just about ministry, 
but suffering in ministry. Like if you remember Peter in his letter, he's, he's written to Christians who've been exiled, persecuted because of their faith. And he tells them, we talked about this last week, that they will suffer for doing good. That people will look on them with hatred and ridicule. And they'll marginalize them. And things will be taken away from them. And he writes to them to say, listen, that's okay. In fact, that's God's will because as we saw last week, Christ also suffered as the righteous for the unrighteous. And so this is what this means to follow in the steps of Christ. That what you're experiencing is not foreign to the Christian. It's not fatal to the Christian as we said last week. And so as we go through this passage in Colossians 1, we're going to see that part of suffering for doing good is not just a result of trying to live holy lives in an unholy world. People looking on you saying, why do you live like that? Why don't you participate in the things we participate in? Why don't you hold the same beliefs we hold? But we also will be a result for trying to speak the gospel. And Paul's going to say, that's okay. We shouldn't give up. We shouldn't keep, we should keep speaking. We should keep sharing. We keep pointing people to Jesus, even if it means suffering for his namesake and the good of others. Uh, so that's the encouragement and the instruction we're going to find here this morning. What it means to suffer in gospel ministry as a minister of the gospel, which is something all Christians are called to. Okay. So with that in mind, let's go on. Colossians chapter one, pick it up in verse 24. Verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. So this is a new paragraph in the text, in the letter. And this verse serves as kind of the overview statement of everything he's talking about. And we're going to come back to it here in just a moment because we're going to keep going. Because as you can see, I mean, this is the most difficult statement in the passage. This is the most difficult statement in all of Colossians to understand. But we're going to deal with it here in a minute. We're trying to understand what does Paul mean? That his suffering fills up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Like, what does that even mean? Okay, but, but for now, let's go on to verse 25. Paul says, of which, talking about the church, Christ's body, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's Paul and he's describing the call in his life to be the servant, to be a servant of the gospel, to be a servant of Christ's body. And that job description, he says, is to make the word of God fully known. And he explains that that fullness of the word of God meant explaining that God was going to reconcile Jew and Gentile, Gentile being non-Jews, to reconcile this relationship and actually make them one body in Christ. And so there was obviously this superior attitude among the Jewish people in the early church that, uh, that they were the chosen people, that Gentiles were outside the chosen people. And this attitude spilled over into the life of the early church. 
And so, so, so much of the New Testament is trying to uh, wade those waters and help them to understand how the gospel changes all of that, breaks down the, the walls of hostility and makes one people under the gospel, regardless of ethnicity and socioeconomic status and, and so many other things. And he's saying th- this is what it means to make the word of God fully known. That God is creating a people for himself. That he's going to reconcile that one body back to him. And he says, this was the plan from the very beginning. This isn't a detour in God's plan. This isn't a parenthesis in the work of God in redemptive history. And he calls it a mystery. A mystery in the New Testament talks about, uh, refers to a, a truth that's always been there, but didn't really make sense or hasn't been revealed until Christ's life, death, and resurrection. He's saying, now we get it. Now we understand what God's doing through Christ. He's, he's recon- reconciling people back to himself in this one body. And so Paul explains, this is what God's called me to. He's called me to preach the gospel. He's called me to explain the word of God in its fullness and all of the implications that come from this. But let's go on. Look at verse 28. He says, him, he's talking about Jesus, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Now, I don't know if you've ever adopted a mission statement for your life or maybe for your family. Um, Certainly organizations adopt a mission statement. Churches adopt mission statements. But verse 28 was Paul's personal mission statement. He says, this is what I'm called to, to present Christ to everyone so that everyone would become mature in Christ. And that's going to involve warning everyone, right? Because in order to see the beauty of Christ as Savior, We need to be warned of our need for a savior. That's going to involve teaching everyone. Why? Because disciples are learners, right? We can't follow Jesus if we don't know him. We can't build our lives on principles we don't know. We can't make other disciples if we aren't disciples first ourselves. And he says, and the goal here is maturity in Jesus Christ. And so we warn everyone, we teach everyone, we proclaim Christ because we want to see everyone mature in Christ. And so this really gives us a really important understanding of what teaching and discipleship really looks like and should be, right? That only Christ-centered teaching will produce Christ-centered disciples. I mean, it's been said, what you win them with is what you win them to. And Paul's saying, I I wanna make sure that I only help people know Christ. So he's my focus, I'm I'm proclaiming him. Why? Because that's how people are made mature in Christ. And so, I mean, this is one reason why we're so committed to Christ-centered preaching and teaching here at Grace Road in all areas of our ministry, right? From the pulpit, in our grace groups, in our grow groups, in Rewind, our teen ministry, our children's ministry, in our institute classes. I mean, we have a singular goal, which is to proclaim Christ because the goal is to present everyone mature in Christ, And so Christ-centered teaching, Christ-centered preaching, I mean, is vital to a local church that desires to make Christ-centered disciples. But listen, this is true also in your own personal growth as well. Even outside the ministry of the church, even when you're not here, gathered on Sunday or in an institute class, or when our teens are in Rewind on Wednesday nights, I mean, you understand whatever you regularly feed your mind and heart on is what you become mature in. I mean, we're always being discipled by something for something. Always. For you could be sports. 
It could be media, it could be politics, it could be current trends of thought. And because we allow ourselves to gorge ourselves on those things, those are the things we become mature in. But listen, we, we can't confuse maturity in those things with maturity in Christ. Like if you want to be mature in Christ, you have to feed your heart and mind on Christ. And again, this is the goal of the church for sure. We want to help develop mature followers of Jesus. So we keep Christ front and center in our teaching. But, but in your personal life, outside of our gatherings, we, we encourage you, keep Christ front and center. Like, like it would be a wonderful goal this year to spend more time in scripture and less time on social media. It would be a great goal this year to spend more time in prayer and less time online. Now, to be clear, I'm online a lot. I'm on social media, but I have to be careful, just like everybody else, that my mind and my heart isn't being shaped by those things as much as Christ. And so we have to be intentional about our own spiritual growth. And that's Paul's point here to the church in Colossae. Gorge yourself on Christ, on the gospel. This is what you'll grow mature in if, if you do that. This is the vision he wants the church to catch as he describes his own ministry. But he goes on to describe the hoped for results of that ministry. Let's go on, verse 29. He says, for this I toil. Well, what's this? Mature disciples, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter two, verse one. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea, this is a town nearby Colossae, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full insurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He's saying, this is the hope of the ministry that you and those in Laodicea and all those that my ministry influences will become mature in Christ. And partly of what that looks like is found there in verse two, that they would be encouraged in heart. They would be united in love. That they would have the full riches of understanding wisdom and knowledge, all of that found in Jesus Christ. Verse five, that they would have a good order and a firm faith in Christ. And so he says, it's Christ I proclaim. I'm gonna warn everyone. I'm gonna teach everyone so I can present everyone mature in Christ because that's how it works. But the point of this passage, Paul is saying, that's my goal. That's my desire. I understand how to get there but I'm not unaware of the sufferings that have accompanied the gospel ministry into which I've been called. He's saying, I I know that's what I'm working for. I know that's what we're working for, but I'm not unaware that it's difficult, that it goes, uh, it's not an easy road. Not everybody wants to be mature in Christ. Not everybody wants to hear the goodness of the gospel. And yet that's what I'm working towards. In fact, go back, to verse 24, the beginning of our paragraph here, verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, 
that is the church. So again, here's this really strange statement by Paul to describe his life and ministry. And at first glance, if you don't know Paul, if you don't know his teachings, if you don't know his beliefs, if you didn't understand the message of Colossians, it might sound like what Paul is saying is that what Christ endured in his arrest, in his trial, in his crucifixion was not enough for the salvation of his people. That there's something lacking in it that there was something lacking in his afflictions, that Paul somehow was going to complete as if Paul's some kind of co-redeemer with Jesus. Now, to be honest, there's not clear consensus exactly what Paul means by this verse. However, it's not saying that Christ's atoning sacrifice is not enough for redemption. I mean, it certainly was. I mean, that's clear all throughout scripture. But I think the answer here to what Paul's getting at Um, can be found in similar phrasing of other passages that Paul wrote. And so follow along with me. This is really important for us to understand and grasp uh, this morning. In the book of Philippians, this is another letter right before the book of Colossians. This is again written by the apostle Paul, a situation very similar. Uh, Paul was in prison, the church in Philippi. This is a, a church that actually Paul knew, spent time with, very, very dear to his heart. This church uh, wanted to bring a gift to Paul while he's in prison. And so they send a man named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus leaves Philippi. He goes to find Paul who's in prison and brings this gift to him to be an encouragement, to be a blessing to Paul. And with that, Paul pins the letter of Philippians. Epaphroditus brings it back to the church. And now we have it in our New Testament. But in chapter two, this is what Paul says about the man who brought the gift to Epaphroditus. Philippians 2 verse 29. He says, so receive him, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Here again, Paul's in prison. Epaphroditus is sent by the church in Philippi to minister to him. We we find out in the letter that that Epaphroditus gets really, really sick and he almost dies. He doesn't make it, but he does make it. He ends up going back to Philippi, of course. But by his coming to Paul, he could complete what was lacking in their service to Paul. In other words, the church made available a gift for Paul. But what was lacking? The delivery of that gift the in-person delivery of this gift to him. And by going to Paul in prison, Epaphroditus filled up what was lacking in the gift of the church of Philippi. Okay, another example is found in 1 Corinthians 16. This is verse 17. Again, the apostle Paul, and he writes, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they've made up for your absence. Again, the same words and the same phrasings used here that these guys brought a refreshment to Paul's spirit that the church in Corinth couldn't do. Why? Because they weren't there. They were gone. They were in a different city. And so they made up for their absence. Other translations say that they supplied what was lacking. And I think this provides the background of Colossians 1.24. In other words, Christ suffered. He suffered on the cross on behalf of his people, yet something still lacking. The only aspect of the gospel that remained undone was this in-person delivery of this good news. The very mission that Paul's tasked with, that in my service, 
that in my work in labor in the gospel ministry, I'm filling up what has been lacking. What? The proclamation of the gospel. Christ offered this gift and now this gift needs to be presented. And this is the mission, to bring good news to others. And it landed him in prison. And yet he rejoices in it. He's saying, I I understand, I'm helping the body of Christ. I'm identifying with Christ and his suffering. And and Paul, of course, he certainly had a unique role in the life of the church. However, we're all called to make disciples. We're all called to the same mission, to proclaim Christ, to see others matured in Christ. We're, We're getting called to make disciples. Every follower of Christ has this ministry. But again, to the point Paul's making, it's not without its difficulties. And what Paul can remind us here is that in our efforts to proclaim the gospel of Christ, we may have to share in the sufferings of Christ. That it required Christ's suffering for our salvation and it may require suffering for his proclamation. And to be sure, this has looked and will look differently in every circumstance and in every place. But regardless of the circumstance, what Paul's reminding us here is to proclaim Christ costs something. Right? For many in history, like Paul, has meant laying down one's life for the proclamation of the gospel. In fact, just yesterday, January 8th, uh, was the anniversary of the martyrdom of five missionaries to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. And if you don't know that story, it really is amazing. I encourage you to learn more about it. And I'll just give you a brief version of it. The long story short, five missionary families since God's call to reach an unreached tribe in the Ecuadorian jungle. And, and this tribe was was known to be extremely territorial, extremely dangerous. They were known to have already killed outsiders who tried to approach them. But this didn't deter these families. So God's called us there. They need to hear the gospel. We need to deliver. We need to fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. And after some months of trying to make contact and build trust with the Indians, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, and Nate Saint, landed on a beach in Aka territory. And from their journals, we know that the initial interaction with a few Indians actually went very, very well. They exchanged gifts. However, those Indians left and they stayed. But a few days later, January 8th, 1956, the five men were attacked and killed by the tribe. Now, there were obviously mixed reactions to that. Mixed reactions to the news of what happened, but the missionaries knew the risk. And even knew, and even more, they knew the importance of bringing the gospel to a people who desperately needed to hear it. Again, they sensed that they were too, in the words of Paul, fill up what's lacking in the affliction of Christ, that they would go and share the gospel with them, though they faced real suffering. And maybe you've heard this statement, Jim Elliott, one of those five men, famously wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you know the story, thankfully, years after their death, other missionaries, including the families of those killed that day, they continued to make contact with the Indians there, sharing the gospel with them and seeing some put their faith in Christ, even some of those that killed those five men. That was, of course, 66 years ago yesterday. But you understand that even today, I mean, all over the world, we have brothers and sisters now really suffering because they're trying to proclaim Christ to their family, to their friends, to their countrymen. 
others crossing cultural boundaries to proclaim the gospel to people who need to hear it. I mean, you probably recently heard of the group of missionaries in Haiti that were kidnapped, right? It was back in October, just a couple months ago, 17 missionaries were abducted by a gang. They were held for ransom for two months. Thankfully, now they've all been released unharmed. But again, those missionaries, knowing the dangers, knowing the risk, but believing they were called to go and bring the gospel to those who needed to hear it. Now, in light of those examples, it's hard to say this, but we too may have to suffer in some way to proclaim Christ. That might not mean taking arrows or spears. It might not mean being abducted by gunpoint and held for ransom, but it might look like being willing to be ridiculed. It might look like being marginalized. It might mean um, going without or maybe more serious suffering, we don't know. Again, if the call is to make disciples, which involves warning everyone and teaching everyone, then that means there's difficult conversations to be had. Right? The gospel is gloriously good news, and yet bad news comes before the good news, right? That yes, we declare and we proclaim we have a savior in Christ, and that's incredibly good news, but we also proclaim people need a savior, that they need saving, that their lives aren't perfect, that they need forgiveness from a holy God. In our our culture, that's a hard conversation to have, isn't it? Because in our culture, it's absolutely intolerant to speak of truth in a way that, that is absolute if it interferes with someone else's beliefs and lifestyle. I mean, you understand our culture doesn't just speak of truth, it speaks of my truth and your truth, believing that all ideas are, are, and opinions are of equal validity. But in a culture that's against absolute truth, to speak not only of truth, but also of falsehood, I mean, that's akin to hate and oppression. And so as we seek to point people to Jesus and you wanna have these gospel conversations with them, we're pointing them to someone more than just this good moral teacher or a good example. We're pointing them to the reigning king over all who's graciously laid down his life for sinful men and women. Which means that we have to speak of sin. Which means we have to speak of repentance. And to proclaim those truths, I mean, might cause others to mistreat you in some way. But I want you to notice again the way Paul views his suffering and gospel ministry. Look again at verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. How how does he respond? He rejoices in them. I rejoice in my sufferings for this. Like understand that the road for, for Christians in this age might be marked by suffering, but that does not mean that it's not also marked by joy. There's great joy to be had in gospel ministry. In fact, let me just give you three quick reasons from Paul here, why we can rejoice as we suffer and filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions as we bring the gospel message to people. First of all, he says, we rejoice because we suffer following Christ in his suffering. I mean, this is the reason we saw it last week, right? In first Peter, we might suffer because Christ also suffered. I mean, over and over again in the New Testament, we're reminded that Jesus was despised, that he was rejected, that he laid down his life and his disciples are gonna experience the same thing. 
And that's not something to dread. That's not something to despise, but it's actually something to rejoice in because we're following Christ. In fact, Paul says this in Philippians 3, as a driving desire for his life. Philippians 3 verse 10, he says that I might know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In other words, rather than avoiding, rather than despising it, this is the desire of Paul, that he might know Christ so well that he's even familiar with his sufferings. And the point, and the so important to understand in the New Testament is that his sufferings produce good in us. Right? Like, like don't be deceived into the thinking that God is only doing good in you when things are good around you. That's simply not true. It's through our step-by-step journey following Christ that we're conformed to his image. And that includes those steps that are the hardest to take and the hardest to stand in. Again, like Paul, we, we can rejoice because we're, we suffer following Christ in his suffering and Christ is doing a good thing in us, making us more like him. But second, he says, we rejoice because we suffer for the good of others. I mean, this is what Paul explicitly is saying here, right? He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And he goes on to say, for the sake of the body, that is the church. In other words, there's tremendous joy for Paul here. That even if he's in prison, even if he's suffering outside of prison, he knows that the end result will be for the good of those he ministers to. And he's willing to, to pour himself out for others. I mean, that's really the way of Christ, isn't it? I mean, that's the way of the gospel. Right? Paul's clear all about that in Philippians 2. If you remember that passage where he says, Jesus emptied himself, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the end result is our salvation, our good, our eternal good. And it's just as Peter said last week in our passage, Christ suffered to bring us back to God. And so Paul there in Philippians 2 is saying, that's true of Christ. And so have this same mind among yourselves, right? Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Why? Because that's the way of Christ. To be willing to lay down ourselves for the good of other people. And so when Christians follow in the steps of Jesus, even if it means suffering, it means that others are edified and others are built up. It means that others who have not heard the gospel get to hear the good news of Christ's love and work for them. And we rejoice. Why? When the end result is good for others, I mean, it just becomes much easier to rejoice in the hardships of ourselves. Why? Because that's the way of Christ. That's the way of the gospel. We pour ourselves out for the good of others. We're willing to do it. And then finally, he says, we rejoice because we suffer for the glory of God for the glory of God. Again, Paul in our passage in Colossians this morning, he speaks of his ministry of one proclaiming the riches of the glory of God's work to reconcile Gentiles and Jews. And that when we proclaim the good news, even though it might cost us something, we're proclaiming the glory of God. And that fuels us to keep going that fuels us and drives us to endure hostility, to endure uh, indifferent responses by people. Why? Because we're glorifying the Lord even in that moment. In fact, when we were uh, missionaries in Europe, we were, uh, we were asked at times uh, what it was like to minister in a place that hasn't at least recently been considered a harvest field. In other words, uh, you don't see a ton of fruit like in other parts of the world, maybe in your ministry. 
In other words, they were asking, how do you stay encouraged when you don't see as much visible fruit in your ministry as you'd like to? And my answer to that became, because I had to learn this, is that I've learned that we have to simply enjoy sowing gospel seed, even if it doesn't mean seeing gospel fruit. What I meant was, is, is when I had a conversation with someone and I talked about the gospel and I told them about God's love for them and what Christ had done on the cross and his life, death and his resurrection, what that meant, that the offer of salvation was there for them. Even though what I wanted most was for that person to see their need for a savior, repent of their sin and trust in Christ. Even though that's what I wanted most and that's what I labored for, even if they didn't, I could rejoice knowing that in that conversation, Christ was exalted. And that's true every time we have a conversation with someone about the gospel, right? Whether, whether they listen intently or they absolutely shrug you off, whether they react with indifference or even hostility to you in the message, we get to rejoice. Why? Because God was glorified as his work in Christ was proclaimed. And listen to the goodness of God. This is what he's done. And God's glorified in it. And further, I mean, God's glorified in our sufferings because we're proclaiming he's worth it. Right? We're saying even if others mock, even if others ridicule, even if others think differently of me, he's worth it. You know, gladly incur, incur what comes my way as long as I'm found faithful to Christ. And we're proclaiming that Jesus is sufficient for this. That Jesus is sufficient to carry us through the difficulties of following him in every conversation I have about him. I mean, this is what Paul joyfully proclaimed. Again, look at verse 29. He said, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What's he saying? That Christ in me, the hope of glory will sustain you and will sustain me as we seek to minister to a world that desperately needs it. I mean, again, regardless of what comes in return, we can toil, we can rely on the work of Christ through us to redeem a people for himself. Now, again, in our series in 1 Peter, imagine these elect exiles. Again, remember their situation, scattered amongst people with different worldviews, different beliefs. They too, despite their sufferings, were called to make disciples of wherever the Lord had them. And they needed to remember, just like we do today, that you might suffer for gospel ministry, but it's a calling that we do not walk through alone. That Christ, the one who suffered for us, works through us, and that can carry us until his return. And, and so the call for us today is simply to ask, are we embracing the ministry God's called us to, even if it might cost us something? Like, can you say, like Paul, now I rejoice in these sufferings, because I'm serving Christ and I'm serving his body and I'm glorifying the Lord in these conversations. Again, understand, you may never sit in a jail cell in Rome, maybe not even here in Rochester, but it's gonna cost you something to say that Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. Can you fulfill the ministry even when it includes suffering? Well, Paul says, by God's grace, you can. So let's be found faithful. Let's keep speaking of Christ. Let's stand firm and rejoice regardless of what comes our way when we proclaim the good news of the gospel. Can we do that? Let's pray this morning. Father, again, we're just so thankful for your word. God, as always, we're so thankful for 
your inspiration of it, for your preservation of it. God, that in it we are reminded time and time again of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And Father, this morning as we wrestle with this passage, Father, this morning we want to say thank you for those who have labored so that we could have heard the gospel. Whoever that might have been first in our life, whoever that is that continues in our life, those people, that person who is unafraid of what we might think, unafraid of what we might do, boldly spoke of Jesus Christ. We want to say thank you for them. Father, we also want to say thank you for those in history who have, who have risked their lives for the spread of the gospel. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church catch a vision of getting the gospel to those who need to hear it, which includes those here in, in our city, in our region, as well as abroad. Father, perhaps, Lord, you might call more from our church to go to the nations. Father, I pray that you help us, all of us, be faithful to speak of Christ, even though it might cost us something. Lord, we confess our apathy. We confess our fear. Because of that, we confess our silence to you. Father, we ask that you'd forgive us. Father, would you make us bold again? And Lord, would you help us rejoice? Help us rejoice in that regardless of what comes, as we speak of the gospel, as we, we seek to warn and teach and proclaim Christ, you're glorified. And regardless of what comes our way, we know that we're, we're serving you and we're serving others and we're following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. So help us be found faithful. Lord, help us lean on you and your work that powerfully works in us as we have these conversations. Father, I pray, again, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you, hasn't seen their need for a Savior, Lord, help them see their need. Draw them to yourself. They might rejoice again in the good news, just like we all do. Father, we love you. We pray for your blessing on the rest of our time as we continue in worship this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.